welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I'm great. Thank you very much. It's a beautiful Sunday morning, uh, Monday morning here in Charlottesville. Yeah, Constitution Day. Happy Constitution Day, Frank. Thank you very much, Andy. I'm not quite sure what the, the appropriate greeting is on Constitution <laughs> Day. Merry Constitution Day, what have you. Uh, what kinds of... Yeah, I think the holiday is not getting enough gravitas yet to get uh, those kinds of accoutrements. Right. Well, uh, well, we should we should you know, spare a thought yeah. for the article, the Articles of, of Confederation. Uh, yes, it? rest in peace, Articles of Confederation. <laughs> we we hardly knew you. Um, <laughs> right. In both uh, the U.S. and the U.K. last week, there was headline news about manhunts for escaped fugitives, dangerous men out on the loose, uh, who have now both been apprehended. Uh, but those news stories got me to think about the history of manhunts in the United States. And so this episode, we're going to talk about uh, America's most wanted, the people that, that, that the United States, either the federal government or state governments or military, were trying to track down and, and try to sort of make sense of this phenomenon. Because uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a romance, I think, with manhunts sometimes, at least. Oh, yeah, there can, yeah, there can be, and certainly, but the stories on both sides of the Atlantic in London and in Philadelphia or the Philadelphia area, mm -hmm. um, in the U.S., you know, caught a lot, got a lot of attention, um, in part because, well, I think there is a romance because these usually begin, or a version of them often begins with a, some sort of escape, and so there mm -hmm. is the sort of escape act, uh, aspect to it. Um, and, and you don't hear about people breaking out of jail very often. And the fact that it happened kind of prominently in both London and uh, Pennsylvania, uh, more or less at the same time, was was quite notable. I think we need to draw a distinction because, of course, um, the most common manhunts in in, in U.S. history were probably, you know, the efforts to apprehend runaway slaves. And mm. I don't think in the main that's what we're talking about. I mean, uh, Jefferson participated in one of these. There was a man named James Hubbard who escaped from uh, Monticello in 1810. He was was basically on the run for over a year. Mm. Um, and, and Jefferson spent a considerable amount of money and and basically employed two bounty hunters to, to get this guy and he eventually got him back. But um, so, but I don't think that's what we're talking about, although those stories are quite important in the history of slavery and resistance to slavery. I think we're talking about not more recent. I mean, we've got one or two that are that, that go back to the 19th century, but I think we are talking about something different. Uh, mm -hmm. would, would you agree with that? So I, and I think well, the distinction I would use is... Yeah. And again, I know slave patrols are the use of state power, but I think if we think post-1865, the real difference here, although bounty hunters play a role in manhunts, is the kind of the use of the state and often considerable resources by the state, mm. either civilian or military, to apprehend individuals. Is that fair? Yeah, I, th I think it is. I mean, I think oftentimes there's also a civilian component to, to manhunts, right. that, that the, the, there's a mob mentality sometimes depending on who it is. Um Posses yeah. and things like that. Sure, you know, and if we think about manhunts as a form of of racial terror, um, you know, where there's sometimes law enforcement, sometimes not. I think there's a continuity between um, you know manhunts for uh, fugitive uh, enslaved people and 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 lynching later in the 19th and, and 20th century, in which you know people individuals are are hunted down in a in a quite quite literal sense uh in, in in a horrific sense um you know the one thing though i think about i want to say about uh, 
fugitives uh, uh, from from slavery that I think may connect with some of these other manhunts um, is the ways in which the environment factors very heavily into their ability to um, both escape from slavery and to to live outside of, of of those kinds of conditions. You know, if we think about uh, you know the man who ran away from Jefferson, how does do people like that survive? in isolation, if you will, you know, and oftentimes uh, uh, I wrote about this a, a decent amount in uh, my my book on slavery and the environment, the ways in which fugitives from slavery use swamps, use mountain ranges, use forests as, as modes of concealment, you know, and when people are actively hunting them um, and how they're able to sort of use that, those to escape. So I guess those are a special category of things. Um, the one of those I think we should actually might, might want to think also about probably the most famous fugitive slave uh, is Nat Turner. Um, Did you I want to talk that, about sure, yeah, sure, talk sure. about his his well I think most days yeah so I mean one of the the fascinating things about about Nat Turner's rebellion and I think the most listeners here know the name but I'll just do the, the basics on it. in 1831 he led uh, one of the largest slave rebellions uh, in the, the United States in Southampton County, Virginia. Uh, he and and his compatriots um, killed something in the order of 55 to 65 white people um, going from plantation to, to plantation. The um, local authorities, white people with guns, uh, put down the rebellion pretty quickly within a couple of days and rounded up most of the co-conspirators. But but Nat Turner himself remained um, on the lam for for I think like thirty to forty days after most of the rebellion had been put down, um, and so he um, hides basically in a little gully neck uh, underneath a, a fallen tree, um, and, and is eventually captured and put on trial and and, and executed. Um, but you know he they were hunting for him for you know weeks and weeks and weeks after the uh, rebellion itself and so i think that's one of the you know earliest examples i can think of of a really sustained manhunt for one individual that lasted you know for a period of time where there's a whole community of people looking for him and obviously that ties in with thousands of other hunts for fugitive slaves you know across the um you know, first couple centuries of american history so, so David, if we're coming up with a kind of working definition for the purposes of our mm, discussion, yeah. So, there have to be, I guess, the state and/or the public are pursuing an individual or individuals, but not mm. not. We're not talking about hundreds of people necessarily. I mean, part of the the allure of the manhunt, at least as a story, and that's something we want to talk about, mm. is that it's often. Um, one or two, maybe three people, kind of fleeing and yeah. and and being pursued, and and so 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 that's a key element of the story. Doesn't matter how long they're on the lamb for or on the run for. So so you know some of the examples I looked at in, in preparing for this, you know, some of these people were on, you know, were, were hiding for a very very long time. Mm. But um, is that that a manhunter? Is it just the you know you're on the FBI most wanted list and they're kind of looking for you as opposed to like what we saw in both London and and Pennsylvania last mm. week where there was sort of a concentrated attempt to find an individual in a particular space? Yeah, is this time limited? I guess I, I'm well, asking. I think it's you know I think it's partially questions about time, but I also think also partially questions about 
technology and geography. You know, if you think about the ways in which, I think in the Pennsylvania case, they use like ring doorbell camera stuff in order to help track down where this guy was and try to have a, a drag net and, and, and what kinds of uh, ways of trying to, to, to find people, you know, and, and being an on the run now is extraordinarily hard. I mean, just being off the grid is, is difficult, but the fact that any people have managed to do it, you know, attracts some kind of, of, of romance to it. On the 19th century or earlier, you know, there's a whole lot more, places in the United States where it's very easy to escape detection, to, to blend into the background, to, to evade capture. I mean, I think some of them, you know, the more recent cases where people are on the land for years, it's, it's just, it's kind of amazing that people are able to do that. Even when, when sometimes when the, the authorities know exactly where they are, you know, the case that, that comes to mind to me most frequently, and which was these recent ones is, is Eric Robert Rudolph, who was the, the bomber at the the um, Olympics in Atlanta, and then proceeded to bomb a few other uh, facilities, including um, a, a gay a nightclub, I think, and an abortion clinic. The FBI knew almost exactly where he was. He was in a relatively small geographic area in, in Western North Carolina, um, uh, and um, you know, it was actually an area that that my wife's family spends a decent amount of time, and so I was always worried that he's basically hanging out in their weekend house. Um, but, uh, you know, when, when they caught him, they, he was exactly where they thought he was. And he was just the, the ability he had both to blend into the mountainous, difficult terrain, but also, I guess, the support he received from the local community um, to uh, to continue living uh, off the land on you know, and off the grid. Um, and there's you know, obviously lots of other examples like that. I think people are fascinated by that, by that phenomenon, even if the people that, that are doing it are you know, pretty ugly people. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the, uh, your comment about the 19th century uh, struck me as yeah, in the 19th century, of course, the grid was much smaller and off the grid was much bigger. Most of the country was off, she the, was grid, off right? the grid, right? Uh, yet, yet the appeal. I mean, so so you think about Eric Robert Rudolph. Um, part of the appeal of the story, and I'm not talking about endorsing his actions, hmm. <laughs> um, is that he is a little bit. The people who hide, particularly in the countryside or off the grid, are seem akin to these 19th century or 18th and 19th century people who are fleeing, as opposed to. You know, somebody like Whitey Bulger, who was, you know, arrested in an apartment building in California in 2011, you know, mm. having been on the run for a long time. I mean, I think there is a modern variant, if yeah. you will. We have two archetypes here. We have kind of Eric Robert Rudolph and Whitey Bulger. Um, and the Whitey Bulger one doesn't strike us as quite so romantic, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Well, let, let's unpack that. I mean, I'm not sure romantic is the right word. What is the appeal of these stories? Because one of what you know, we we can go through a long list of 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 people who've been subject to manhunts. Uh, anybody who's seen The Fugitive, you know, knows yes. you know the line about checking every outhouse, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, yes. farmhouse, etc., whatever the line goes with Tommy Lee Jones. There, there's unquestionably an appeal to these stories, notwithstanding that in most cases the individuals concerned are usually awful. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, and we think about like Bonnie and Clyde, you know, people yeah. who killed a whole lot of people, generally not good people, but they seem really good in the movie. 
or these. Yeah, well, it helps if you're played by Matt. Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty. But, but well, yeah. that helps, right? <laughs> but I, but yeah, I mean, so these are awful people. But why are their stories so compelling? Well, and, and this goes back in history. I mean, whether you go to kind of outlaw ballads mm, in the early yeah. modern period, I mean, th there's a genre around this that that goes well beyond the you know the uh, the United States. And and so, what's the appeal? Well, I guess a lot of it is about you know, uh, all of us have a, a longing to escape and feeling that we could be, you know, um, completely independent of, you know, the authorities and, and limits that society places on us. I guess there's a bit of it it's that, um, you know, the, you know, John Rambo kind of uh, one person taking on a much larger force kind of, of, of you know, romance. Um, you know, and I think some of the romance, sometimes people sympathize with the, the actions of the individual, you know, uh, if you're Bonnie and Clyde and you're robbing banks during the great depression piece, some people see that as oddly heroic. Uh, um, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Um, I, I, I like your framing about, you know, we see ourselves in them. I would last about two minutes on the run. I, oh, no, no, I, I would be off. No, I think both of us would be rich. I, I can't uh, think of anything I would be worse at than this. But um, uh, uh, however, uh, I, I think there's the underdog aspect of it. Mm. Uh, I mean, what's interesting in, you know, the, the best kind of pop culture version of this is The Fugitive. Mm. And of course, in The Fugitive, the the fugitive was unjustly accused so they yes. dealt with the kind of ethical complications of this by making it you know he's the victim not 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 a, not the perpetrator because the rest of the people we're going to we may mention in the course of this conversation are pretty awful people who've done some awful things you know you get pursued usually for doing something ter terrible, mm -hmm. like or, Timothy or, or, or Shawshank Redemption, which has a similar sort right. of narrative arc to it, right? That's right. That's right. Mm. Um, so so. But then you go back to whether it's the Count of Monte Cristo or whatever, you know, stories of prison breaks, first of all, appeal to people. Yeah. And it is interesting, you know, both of these guys who escaped last week or in the past couple of weeks um, were, you know, made prison breaks that were pretty unusual. You know, the guy in London, you know, strapped himself to the uh, the bottom of a truck and, and the guy in, in Pennsylvania seemed to have like slipped between the bars because he was really skinny. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and so I want to the the actual act of escaping uh, engenders a certain appeal. There is the uncertainty. I mean, it's terrible for the people in the area. I mean, I think the people in the area in Pennsylvania were quite you know, anxious and worried um, that this guy was on the run. Yeah. But on the other hand, for the rest of the world who aren't in that area, there's a sort of catch me if you can aspect to it. So I think the stories themselves are particularly compelling. We like antiheroes. You know, whether it's Bobby mm. Axelrod and Billions or Tony Soprano, I mean, culture's full of anti-heroes, and so so there's an element of that, especially, and I think Bonnie and Clyde are are, are germane in in this case, especially if they're taking on institutions like banks during the Depression. It's a little less, you know, um, little you know, Eric Robert Rudolph bombing the Olympics. That's that's kind of harder to take, I suppose, uh, or harder to identify with. Mm. But I think I think there are elements that appeal to human nature uh mm. and and the stories themselves are often quite compelling i think yeah we're getting so what are your, documentaries yeah. on ted bundy that have come out in recent years you know where it's a person who does horrible things but also manages to escape in a variety of ways you know that's... yeah so so 
the archetypal manhunt, it seems, from the 19th century, David. I mean, I, I'm glad you yeah. mentioned Nat Turner, but it has to be John Wilkes Booth. Well, there's there's two manhunts that happened basically at the same time, right at the end of the Civil War. They actually overlap. Um, and one is John Wilkes Booth. The other is just Jefferson Davis. Um, and, and so it's interesting to sort of think about what those manhunts mean in terms of how the war ends. So um, the story, I think most listeners probably know this from uh, John Wilkes Booth. He shoots Lincoln in Ford's theater. He jumps on the stage. He breaks his leg in the process. He manages to uh, escape into Maryland uh, and eventually in, into Virginia. There is an enormous manhunt to try to capture him. I mean, they, they've got as you'd imagine, a lot of soldiers in the greater D.C. area, they all get mobilized. They start searching all the ships. They start searching basically all the buildings. They start you know, searching people who are passing through on the roads. They are really having a massive manhunt to try to, to find a Booth. And the intriguing thing, do you know how Booth didn't get caught for the first three quarters of it? I do not. He basically stayed in the same place. He kind of hung out yeah. in the woods and all the people are figuring like he's trying to escape. He's trying to, so they had a cordon around things. And they're trying to search all the ships and they're doing, you know, telling soldiers to pull, you know, 24 hour shifts to try to try to find him. Uh, and he was basically just sort of hiding out in the woods. Um, but then, you know, one of the things he, he thought uh, was they thought he was going to be a hero for, uh, for killing Lincoln. And it turns out even the Confederates weren't very happy about this because they knew what the consequences might be for them. Uh, so he is eventually uh, cornered at a farmhouse in Virginia. He, they demand that he surrender. He refuses. Uh, and then they set the, the barn on fire, hoping to get him to his to his to sort of run out and be captured. And he runs out and they shoot him. So that's his story. The other manhunt that's happening basically at the same time is Jefferson Davis. Uh, Confederate president, um, who leaves uh, Richmond, the Confederate capital, shortly before Richmond falls, like literally hours before Richmond falls. Uh, and his goal is to, to try to find someplace safe. He goes west with the Confederate cabinet to, to Danville. He goes down to Greensboro. Uh, he goes into down to Charlotte. He has various meetings with uh, political and military leaders, the Confederacy, trying to sort of maintain the Confederate government on the run. He's on a train for most of this. Eventually, he gets on horseback. Um, and he his goal at one point is to try to get to Texas, which was still under pretty firm Confederate control, or to somehow escape to Cuba, maybe. Uh, his exact plan remains somewhat unclear, but he's, he's determined not to be captured, not to be held prisoner, not to be held uh, by the U.S. government, uh, and they eventually capture him after putting, they put a bounty on his head of, of I think, $100,000, which in 1865 money is a lot of money, um, you know, and so the army is looking for him. There are lots of civilians who are looking for him, uh, and they eventually capture him in Irwinville, Georgia, which is in the middle of nowhere. Um, I've been to the site where he was captured, and you got to drive on a dirt road with chickens on it to get there. Um, there's a weird kind of lost cause shrine there where he got captured. Um, but the, the story is that when he was captured by the, by the cavalry, uh, he hid himself or was trying to disguise himself with a shawl, uh, to try to 
blend into something and sneak off into the woods. Um, the shawl disguise didn't work, but the way it got reported in the news was not that he was hiding under his wife's shawl, but he was caught wearing his wife's dress. And so there's all these uh, lovely, uh, fanciful images of Jefferson Davis in a dress being captured and, and you can imagine all the uh, gendered uh, political readings of that in, in 1865. So there's both those manhunts happening sort of basically simultaneously uh, in April uh, 1865, which brings a thrilling conclusion to the war. Uh, I mean, both of those stories um, remind me of an element I left out in trying to account for why these stories appeal. And that's because, and that is the villains usually get their comeuppance when somebody mm. remains on the run although that fascinates us as well you know basically there's a there's a there's a kind of narrative arc to these stories that ends in capture and often in the as in the case of john wilkes booth mm. in a blaze of glory right where yes. where, where, where the individual's killed so you can even see that there's a kind of moral reckoning that goes on that allows us to follow the story because we're even if we're sympathetic to the person who's on the run because they're mm. hiding, um, you know, they get their comeuppance in the end. Yeah. So to a certain extent, there's a kind of um, fairy tale is the wrong way to put it. Morality tale aspect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and there's a, the, the, the on whose terms is, is the, the manhunt going to end. So there's the uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid version. There's the Thelma and Louise version, you know, and so there's, you know, cinematically, at least we've got lots of different models of, of, heroic or semi-heroic or whatever it is uh, that we can map onto these other examples. Um, you know, thinking about, about the, the, the two uh, manhunts in the Civil War, you know, both of those are, are kind of military manhunts as much as they are uh, police actions. And so I think, you know, when we think about the history of manhunts in the United States, I think thinking about uh, those two categories are very interesting, about, about those that are um, ostensibly civilian criminal manhunts and those that are, are uh, really sort of military actions. Um, and there's some really fascinating ones from, the, uh, you know, of, of the military kind at the, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning part of the 20th century. Um, probably the, the most famous uh, one in the 19th century is Geronimo, who... Um, leaves the the Apache reservation uh, in Arizona in 1885 with 120 guys. Um, and this is really one of the first sort of major military manhunts that uh, the that the, 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 the gets organized uh, in the post-Civil War period. They send a huge number of soldiers to try to find this. Something like three or four thousand men to try to find Geronimo and his small, relatively small band. You know, he starts off with 120. At the end, he's got like 20 guys, but the army can't find him, or if they get close to him, he manages to sneak away. Um, you know, and eventually they do capture him. Um, but that's like, you know, the, the time they eventually do capture him, they had actually already been in negotiations with him a number of times to try to coerce his surrender, and, and you know, he refuses a, a number of times. The intriguing thing about that for more recent manhunts, do you know what the uh, code name was or the code word was when they caught Osama bin Laden? That I'm guessing they, Geronimo. It was Geronimo. That's what they yelled when they caught him. That, that was, or, or to signify that 
they were had successfully uh, killed uh, Osama bin Laden was Geronimo. Although Geronimo himself wasn't killed. Yeah, he went to prison. Um, they actually trotted him out of prison on a number of occasions because he was something of a celebrity for being on the run for so long. Um, the other one from the early 20th century that comes to mind is Pancho Villa, um, who for some reason has lots of Mexican restaurants named after him, including one here in Edinburgh. Um, but he's a basically a Mexican outlaw who invades the United States um, uh, and does a, a raid on the city or town of, of Columbus, New Mexico, where he kills 19 people and flees back into Mexico. And President Wilson orders an expedition to try to bring him to justice. So it's basically sending the army to go and uh, do police action, if you will. Um, and he sends uh, Black Jack Pershing, who would later go on to be the, the hero of, of the First World War, with something, I think, in the order of like 6,000 or no, sorry, 5,000 men, which if you think about the size of the U.S. Army, in peacetime, that's a lot of guys. That's a significant portion of the U.S. Army going into a foreign country to acquire, capture one person. The intriguing thing about Pancho Villa is they never actually capture him. They managed to capture many of, of his uh, lieutenants. They managed to significantly militarily weaken him. Uh, but that's a manhunt that actually doesn't end with a um, dramatic climax, if you will. Wilson basically decides that that um, because of international questions and whatnot, that that uh, continued invasion of Mexico is not in their U.S. best interest, and they basically stop. I mean, the the thing about that is they penetrate as far as 350 miles into Mexico, yes. so it's it's not just crossing the border. The border, border, no, no. This is this is a, a an invasion of Mexico, if you want to think about it in from the Mexican perspective. I mean, I, I thought about that in light of, you know, some of the things Ron DeSantis has been saying lately about using the U.S. military against uh, cartel leaders in Mexico. Mm. I mean, he's been promising to do that as part of his campaign. I mean, uh, naturally, this is just a lot of rhetoric, but it it's amazing to think that the United States uh, sent such a significant military force into Mexico for such a long period, it, such a long period of time and so deep into Mexico during a time of, of uh international crisis because of course the first world war is going on one can see why the germans actually thought about trying to bring enlist mexico as a potential ally in the war against the united states uh in that context yeah zimmerman telegraph um, thing, right yeah but uh, um yeah but you're right david that's a, that's a rare one where they kind of uh the subject of the of the manhunt um gets away maybe we don't call them manhunts unless they end and they usually you know in other words they're they're, they're retrospective manhunts aren't they otherwise mm -hmm. people are just being sought i suppose but they, anyway so what about more modern ones what are the ones that that, that strike you because it's amazing how how often these things happen actually no no yeah they i think they do happen a lot um well in terms of ones that have historical you know significant i think there's lots of criminals that are chased down and you know bonnie and clyde and other kinds of people um Ones that have real significance, I think, uh, the the and one I didn't know as much about until I started to prepare for this episode, the manhunt for James Earl Ray. Yeah, he got caught crossing a border, which is again that's another international one because he, he was, he was yet, in Europe. Yeah, he was he was he was. Uh, what well, the the two things that struck me about that that, that I didn't know because it's not my century. Um, 
was how long he was on the lamb for. I mean, he, you know, Martin Luther King was was killed on the fourth of April, uh, nineteen sixty-eight, and Ray is not captured until June eighth, nineteen sixty-nine. So he's on the lamb for more than a year, um, which I hadn't known before. Um, and he had uh, obtained a fake Canadian passport and and flown to the UK. Uh, the understanding that that people had is that he was trying to get to uh, Rhodesia, which doesn't have an extradition treaty or didn't have an extradition treaty, uh, doesn't exist anymore, um, with the United States and that he would uh, be safe there in Rhodesia was obviously a, a white supremacist nation in terms of its uh, policy. So they would have welcomed him uh, as a something. Um but that, that manhunt for him, I think, is, is one that I didn't know about in terms of how long it took, uh, and and the, I didn't realize he would capture in London. So that's a, an interesting... Uh, well, and what's interesting... Yeah, I mean, that, that's an interesting international one. And, and I guess, although it's relatively recent, of course, prior to computers and, and you know, a, a networked world, you know, you could travel... I mean, people do travel on false passports today, of course, mm. as well. But... but, but um, you know, I, I guess if he eluded the initial search yes. right after King's assassination and had a passport, you know, and, and if you're careful, you probably could stay on the run for a while. So that's slightly different than the, I mean, Ray falls into the kind of Whitey Bulger category of mm -hmm. hiding in plain sight, I suppose, you know, living amongst people as opposed to going off the grid. Yeah. Um, it seems that these these outlaws have two options. They either hide in plain sight or they go off the grid, right? To be sure, and, and and yeah, I guess you know, you know, do you assume a fake identity and all these other kinds of things? And he had, he had all of that going going for him. Um, I'm fascinated by the the head the the manhunt for for Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. <coughs> um, in, in part, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Unabomber, uh, these were uh, a man who who sent mail bombs mostly to academics. Uh, but also to to a few other groups, including one airline. Uh, and he had ideas about technology and the fate of mankind as a consequence of this. Um, but there was a huge manhunt for him. All you know, the he was uh, you know the FBI was looking for him. Other groups were looking for him. There was a one million dollar reward on his head. And and turns out he was hiding out in Montana in a cabin he built himself that was off literally off the grid had no electricity no running water was very very modest uh, and he was only found because they printed his manifesto and his brother recognized his brother's style or you know, uh, or ranting and, and said that's probably my brother Ted um, so I'm fascinated by, by that one because he, he really is somebody who is living off of the grid which other recent ones struck you? yeah i mean about kashinsky that's interesting because uh the new york times printed his manifesto yeah, yeah you know back when printed newspapers were a thing this is the mid 90s and um and it's interesting as you say that his brother turned him in so this was not the kind of um uh or or gave the fbi the tip so that wasn't quite the um the way a lot of the other ones have gone um I mean, the more recent ones that, that struck me, there was after the Boston bombing in 2013, mm. Boston Marathon bombing, um, you know, the, the, they tracked down 
the Sarnayev brothers relatively quick, quickly. That was a little bit more like what we saw last week, although mm. more violent, um, in both London and in Pennsylvania. And that this is the kind of the immediate search for somebody right after an event, yeah. right, at, right after a crime has been committed. Uh, or that's in the kind of John Wilkes Booth category, as opposed to the you know, more prolonged searches. Um, the other one that struck me uh, that I was reminded of in reading about this, it's amazing how these things are huge at the time and then fade from our memories, was the uh, Hunt for the Beltway Snipers in 2002. Oh, yes, I, I remember that. That was, I mean, that was uh, you know particularly scary because I think most, you know, most of these narratives, people are not worried that the, the runaway person is going to, do violence to people unless they get cornered or something. Uh, but but for those of you who don't remember the Beltway Snipers, you know, there were shootings that were taking place. I, I think there were 10 people killed in the greater D.C. area by gunfire and people didn't know where it was coming from or, or why they were being targeted. And there were sometimes people at gas stations and other kind of relatively nondescript places. That's right. And it seemed to have been completely random. I mean, that, and of course it, it happened... Um, in the in the uh, aftermath of the 9/11 bombings, when when uh, or attacks, when uh, uh, you know there was just a huge amount of sensitivity about terrorism, and this was people were terrorized because oh, it to was be sure. you yes. know they, it was random, um, and and the um, and they were eventually just the police closed in on them. So that was one uh, that's one that kind of stuck in my mind. Hard to believe it was 20 years ago, or more than 20 years ago. Mm. at this point um so um this happens periodically as i said i think the more fascinating thing is why do we care and i, I mm. you know i've tried to address that but um uh what's your takeaway are there any lessons from this david or is it just we like outlaw ballads and we like to see people get their comeuppance i think that's a lot of it um i think they they, they you know it in they have a very easy narrative to understand even if you you know uh whether they're a romantic figure or they're a you know villain um you know thinking about sort of osama bin laden you know the sort of the mythology that gets attached to his ability to escape from you know the entire u.s and global military trying to track him down in caves in afghanistan um you know, I, I think there's a easy narratives that are attached to it um, that that make the, these kinds of stories fascinating, and I think you know continue to be you know things people go back to. They're they're you know I, these, some of these are stories that end up getting told in classes on a regular basis because they're they're dramatic stories, um, and so I think that that's that's part of it. I mean, I always show the Jefferson Davis pictures because that's, that's always fun. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I, I I think that's it. As I said, I think there's the appeal of the anti-hero. There's the inherent drama in these, at least if they happen in the immediate aftermath of the of the attack or the the crime. I think there's the kind of uh, meeting out of justice that appeals to people. So I think there's a variety of uh, kind mm. of tropes at work that make these compelling yeah. stories. I mean, and and look, um, the kind of people. Uh, both, well, as I say, the appeal of anti-heroes and, and the, then, um, you know, if you look at films like The Fugitive or Bonnie and Clyde or, mm. you know, Boba Fett is a bounty hunter, right? I mean, the, 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 these stories appeal to us um, 
as I say, kind of across time and space in certain in certain ways. But mm-hmm. I think although they appear subversive in that in that they, you know, the, the, we see things from the perspective of the criminal, um, they, they kind of um, enforce and endorse uh, law and order because mm. the bad guys get their comeuppance in the end. And I will say, guys, and we've been talking about manhunts. I mean, we mentioned Bonnie and Clyde. The vast majority of of the protagonists in these stories are men. Um, so sure. there's an interesting kind of gender d- dimension to this too. But um, uh, you know, there'll be another one. I have no yeah. doubt. You know. Um, so, do you think there's anything? I'm going to ask a question and answer it, which is a terrible way to do a podcast. Do you think there's anything inherently American about this? I think there are American variations of these tales, but again, I think these kind of outlaw ballads, you know, mm. uh, you've got them in yeah. Scotland, you've got them in early modern England. You, I, I think they transcend, you know, it's Robin Hood. How to be sure. Yeah. Um, so I think the American element has to do with the environment, honestly. I mean, I think that in so many of these stories, the, the, aspect that that makes the the flight so compelling and interesting is is simply the you know the size of the united states the the inhos how inhospitable some of the terrain is that these outlaws are living in you know geronimo is able to survive because he understood the the land in a profound way pancho Villa the same way um you know, Nat Turner the same way, um, you know, and, and and I think that wildness and expansiveness of the United States, I think, sort of lends itself to these kinds of stories in very particular ways um, that doesn't happen in or doesn't happen in quite the same way, I think, in, in more um, densely populated, picked over uh, kinds of places. Um you know, there's not that many places to hide in Britain right now because we got CCTVs everywhere and computer algorithms that can track people and, and whatnot. And, uh, you know, when people have tried to run in urban spaces, they can cause huge disruptions, but tend to get caught pretty quickly. The Shania brothers, I think, are a good example of that. I mean, that manhunt cost, according to one estimate, a billion dollars to try to catch those two guys. Um, but they were caught relatively quickly and not far from where the violence took place. So that would be my read on what's the particular American element of it. I think there's also a, a an American tendency towards uh, anti-government, anti-authority sentiment that is true in lots of places, but has some very particular American flavors to it. Um, the way we tend to, you know, romance outlaws of all kinds. But undoubtedly there'll be more of these. And I think that, you know, thinking about both what these police people are and the way it gets mythologized is, is interesting and important. All right. Uh, we are, uh, you've got a thing and I've got a thing and it's time for the last drop. So what you got? I want to endorse, I mean, this, this is not original to me, clearly. It's been all over the news in the last week, but I read, um, the new book coming out about and kind of by Mitt Romney called Romney, a reckoning by McKay Coppins. Okay. Um, I read the extract in the Atlantic and, and Mitt Romney who's leaving the Senate um, clearly uh, cooperated with Coppins at great length and, and gave him many, many hours of interviews. And it is very based on the extract I read in the Atlantic, 
very, very rich in detail. We've talked about the kind of genre of political memoirs before, um, and, and they're of, they can be of limited value. I think this one's going to be important and valuable. First of all, he gives a lot of insightful um, detail about his life. Uh, his wife, Anne, is, is, is not with him at the moment while he's serving in Washington, and so he's kind mm -hmm. of leading this very strange bachelor existence which doesn't seem very happy for him because he's he's a very dedicated family man mm. um and, and 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 so there are some it's got rich details it's quite funny about the um life in the scenic gym he's aware <laughs> that he's you know he's using the machines on a higher level of resistance than other senators and he, <laughs> he writes about that in his diary so there's some there's there's some there's some very interesting details but he's also of course um a leading Republican critic of President Trump, former President mm. Trump, and he has a lot to say about that. I think as a, as a as a historic document, it's going to be more valuable than most of these things. And the the extract in the Atlantic is very good, and I'm looking forward to the book actually. Okay, Romney's one of the more fascinating, I think, current members of the political class in terms of somebody who has a interesting set of principles they lives by and, and and doesn't necessarily play by the exact same rules as everyone else, even though he seems like he's a rule abider generally yeah that's right i mean it's I, I may have said this before um you know if he'd been elected in 2012 mm. the trajectory of the country or certainly the tra trajectory of the republican party might have been very very different but certainly and as a consequence maybe the country yeah i think that's a uh, yes that's a fair statement that things would have gone no. anyway. in a very different way Anyway, David, what's your what's your last drop? Uh, well, I just want to plug the uh, American History Workshop, which is starting up uh, next week. Um, you know, for those of you who are, are uh, not familiar with this, this is a, a seminar that the university runs most Thursdays at five o'clock, where we bring in historians uh, from um, around the world uh, and some who are more local to share works in progress and to get feedback and to talk about historical writing and 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 all the kinds of, of problems that we all struggle with in in doing so um if listeners are interested in getting involved in, uh, in the workshop um you can obviously come to the workshop physically but uh, we've been doing it on zoom um also uh, for the past several years uh so if people want to be on the mailing list to get involved in that just email me and i can add you to that and, and uh you can come and, and uh, join in the fun Excellent. All right. Till next week, Frank. Cheers, Cheers, David. Bye, everybody. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.